Tonight we're continuing this series in the book of Romans, chapter 3, and our topic is the verdict of God. Let's uh, pray together as we come to God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, as we turn now to your precious Word, enable me to preach it clearly, and may your Word expose our sinful hearts before you, our Creator and Judge, that we might respond rightly to you. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, what is the problem with the world? What is the problem with our world? Uh, If you're sick, it's absolutely crucial that you get the right diagnosis, isn't it? Uh, If you get the disease right, then you can get the right treatment, and then there's a chance that you'll recover. But get the diagnosis wrong, not only may the treatment not work, but it might actually make things worse. So just imagine this evening you have a fever, a dry cough, tiredness, a headache. If you've got those, you better not be here, isn't it? So you go to the hospital to get it checked out, and the doctor, well, he gives you some Panadol and sends you home. Now, soon you discover the Panadol does absolutely nothing at all because you don't have the flu. You've got COVID-19. The diagnosis was wrong. The treatment was wrong. And now you're in deep trouble. Well, this evening, God wants us to diagnose the human condition. What is the problem with our world? Why is our world filled with such evil and suffering? What is the solution to it? Now, of course, lots of people think that the the problem is out there. You know, they say that human beings, well, they're basically good. Uh, The problem is a, a bad upbringing, not enough education, the wrong government maybe. And if we just got all those things right, well, then there would be peace. Then there would be equality. Then people would be truly moral. It's the basic assumption underlying most major religions, which are all about being good. But I want to ask the question this evening, does that really explain the world that we live in? I mean, as you turn on the news and you read of sexual assault and scammers stealing thousands from vulnerable people, inequality in vaccine distributions, racism, bullying, corruption, abuse, gangs, drugs, violence, divorce, deception. I mean, we could add a a much longer list to that if we added all that Paul said at the end of Romans 1. I mean, are human beings really essentially good? Are we really just on the wrong path? Or does the problem go deeper than that? Well, before we come to Romans chapter 3, to answer that question, let's just remember the context. Uh, We began in chapter 1 with the gospel of God, the gospel all about God's Son, uh, promised in the Old Testament, raised from the dead as our Lord, and, and for the obedience of faith among all the nations to the glory of God. And we saw that Paul was not ashamed of this gospel because, chapter 1, verse 16, it was the power of God to bring salvation to all who believed. But before Paul actually gets to that good news, which we'll finally read off next week in verses 21 to 26, he actually has spent two long chapters now outlining humanity's dark problem. He began in chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness 
and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We saw that God is personally angry with our sins. And in his anger, he gives us up to the consequences of our sins as we, we live in all manner of passion and impurity, hurting others and hurting ourselves. Now, in chapter 2, Paul explained that God not only judges us now in history, but there's also a coming day of wrath when God will judge every person according to what they have done without partiality. And we saw last week that there'll be no escape for the moralist who thinks that they are better than others, because God's standard is perfection. He will judge people not according to uh, whether they have the law or circumcision, but what they have done. So it's not enough to, to have the law or to teach the law or to have circumcision. God's judgment won't be based on what we know or what we teach, not what religious ceremonies we perform, but by what we do. And by that standard, we've all fallen short. No exceptions, no excuses. Well, now Paul comes to sum up his argument. But before he does that, he has four objections to deal with in the first eight verses. See, at the end of chapter 2, Paul basically said that there's no fundamental difference between Jews and Gentiles. Uh, because being right with God is not about your physical descent or circumcision. It's about what's in your heart. And so, of course, the objection comes. If Jews will be judged in the same way as Gentiles, then what's the point in being Jewish? Let's pick it up in chap from chapter 2, verse 28. I think you'll get the point. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. A Jew is one inwardly. Circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Now, we might be expecting a resounding no at this point. No point being a Jew. But Paul's reply is rather emphatic, isn't it, in verse 2? He says, much in every way. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Paul highlights the primary benefit of being a Jew, and that is that you had access to the very word of God. And what a privilege that was. They could know God. They could know his promises. They could know about his righteous character. Uh, in chapter 9, Paul is going to mention many more privileges that the Jews had. He says this in chapter 9, verse 4. They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. A lot of privileges. But the privileges are useless if they are unfaithful. So that brings us to the second objection. If God will judge his unfaithful people, does that make God unfaithful? Verse 3, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? Paul's answer is once again emphatic. Verse 4, by no means, let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul goes back to Psalm 51, where David repents of committing adultery with Bathsheba, and he affirms God is entirely justified to judge his people when they sin. So that brings us to a third rather twisted objection. Is God unrighteous to judge his people? Verse 5, 
But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. I mean, Paul is almost embarrassed, actually, mentioning this objection. As if in a law court, the criminal would go to the judge and say, you know what, it would be morally wrong for you to judge me. Because my crime, it shows how good you are by comparison. It's like an abusive husband trying to justify his behavior to his wife. The more I beat you, the more it shows how faithful you are not to leave me. It's a rather perverse way of thinking, really, isn't it? Paul replies in verse 6, by no means. Then how could God judge the world? It may well be true that our sin highlights God's righteousness by comparison. But that doesn't justify our sin. Evil is still evil. Evil still deserves to be punished. And because God is the righteous judge, he won't ignore it. He will judge it. So that brings us to a fourth and really equally stupid objection in verse 7. But if through my lie God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil? That good may come. Some people slanderously charge us with saying their condemnation is just. So according to the fourth objection, if my evil glorifies God by showing how truthful he is, well, I'm actually doing God a favor by sinning. In fact, I should sin even more so that God is glorified even more. So how can God condemn me for glorifying him with my sin? Now, it's a kind of perverse logic that makes good evil and makes evil good. Some people do that today, don't they? This time Paul doesn't even bother to answer. He just says, their condemnation is just. These are exactly the kind of people who deserve the judgment of God. Well, what do we learn from these verses? I think we see here that no matter how many objections we might have to the idea of God judging our sin, no matter how many excuses we might want to make why God shouldn't judge our sin, how many justifications we want to make for why our failures, well, they're really okay, well, they're not going to stand up in the end. God's objective verdict on humanity remains unchanged. God, the righteous judge, will bring perfect judgment according to his holy standard. Well, with the objections swept aside, now in verses 9 to 20, Paul concludes his argument and gives God's verdict on humanity. God's verdict on humanity. Now, it's a courtroom scene we have here. First, we have the charge, then the evidence, and finally the verdict. The charge is there in verse 9. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we've already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. See, yes, the Jews had privileges, sure, but Paul is clear that in the end, their advantage is no advantage of all, at all, because God, the impartial judge, will judge people according to his standard, and no amount of privilege denies the reality that all people, Jew and Gentile, are under sin. Now, that phrase there, under sin, it's very carefully chosen. Now, Paul doesn't simply mean here that we are all sinners. I mean, that should be obvious enough. I I guess if I asked you to put up your hand this evening, uh, if you've never sinned before in your whole life, I imagine I won't see any hands. 
even if you did dare to put up your hand to that, uh, I would just quote 1 John 1 verse 9 that says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Of course, we're all sinners. We've all failed to treat God rightly as God. We haven't glorified him as he deserves. We serve ourselves, we serve idols instead. But that's not Paul's point here. Paul's point is that we are under sin, under the power of sin, under the control of sin. It's as if sin is personified here as a prison guard, uh, holding us captive in a prison cell. We are unable to break free from its control. Sin is our ruler. Sin is a cruel tyrant that imprisons us. Think about it. If you tried to go even one single day without sinning, you know, no lustful thoughts, no coveting someone's possessions, no pride, always gentle, always loving, always patient, always forgiving. You just couldn't do it. Impossible. We're all under sin. So that's the charge. Now, the evidence to drive home his point, Paul brings out, or the largest, collect, longest collection of Old Testament quotations in one place in the New Testament. Now, Paul wants us to see that this is not just his assessment of humanity, this is God's assessment of humanity. And so firstly, he appeals to the universal nature of sin in verse 10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Seven times the negative there. None, not one, no one, no one, no one, not even one. No one does good. All have turned aside. Remember back in chapter 2, we, uh, uh, we read it in the introductory sentence. Paul said, all those who seek for God, who do good, they will receive eternal life. Remember that? Well, here is the simple point we must grasp. There is not one single person on this earth, apart from Jesus, that falls into the good category. Paul says, no one seeks for God. No one does good. Not even one, we're all evil, we're all enslaved to sin, we're all deserving of the judgment of God, we're all headed for eternal punishment. This is the Bible's diagnosis of the human condition. Not just on the wrong path, not essentially good with a few bad apples out there, but all people universally Sinful. Now I'm going to upset some people, I guess. Lawyers, accountants, engineers, doctors, teachers, cleaners, maids, hawkers, factory workers, old, young, male, female, rich, poor. Have I missed anyone? You, me, all people, universally sinful. I wonder if you accept this view of humanity. I wonder if you accept this view of yourself. It's all rather negative, isn't it? But the thing is, unless in humility you grasp the depth of your problem, unless you get the diagnosis right, 
you'll never get the right solution. You'll never think that you need Jesus and his cross. You'll deceive yourself to thinking you just need a bit more religion, a few more good works. If the good outweighs the bad, if I'm better than that person over there, then I'll be okay. No. Compared to God's standard, you and I are guilty and condemned. Now, if we're still not convinced, Paul drags out more evidence. Paul says, if you're unsure, just consider your speech. It's so true, isn't it? Our speech often reflects what's in our hearts. We might be able to hide all manner of evil thoughts in our heads, but once someone starts speaking, then you can see what they're really like, can't you? And Paul says, our, th- our throats, our tongues, our lips, our mouth are full of evil. They, they reflect the storehouse of evil that's in our hearts. Verse 13 Their throat is an open grave, like a rotting corpse, hideous, unclean. Not just swearing, not just crude jokes, not just threats that we utter against other people. Verse 13, they use their tongues to deceive. You say one thing, you mean another. Half-truths, white lies, deceptive contracts, false advertising, gossiping, slandering with half-truths. Verse 14, the venom of asps is under their lips. Says our lips are like snake venom, ready to strike at any moment, ready for revenge, ready to tear someone's reputation down. Verse 14, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness, constant complaints, grumbling, dissatisfaction, venting, shouting, speaking badly about our parents, our colleagues, our boss, our government, even fellow Christians. No thankfulness, no appreciation, only bitterness, curses, anger. See what he means? If you want to be convinced of the reality of human sin, just consider what we say. This is a rather scary thing to do, I guess, but uh, imagine you took a recording of everything that you said in the last year. Everything you've posted on Facebook. Everything you've ever written on WhatsApp, was it always true? Only ever thankful? Always gentle and kind? I don't think so. We're slaves to sin, addicted to lies. It reveals our hearts. But of course, there's still more. More evidence comes out of the locker. It's not just our speech, it's our actions as well. Paul says, look at the destructive consequences of sin in our lives. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. You know, looking forward, we run into conflict. We're constantly fighting and attacking one another. Personally, with other friends, in marriages, workplaces, campuses, church meetings, conflict. Verse 16, in their paths are ruin and misery. You look at what's left behind. Ruin and misery. The devastation of conflicts can be seen everywhere, can't it? Broken marriages, fractured friendships, divided churches. Look inside, verse 17, the way of peace they have not known. It's interesting, isn't it? It doesn't matter how many UN peacekeepers we have. It doesn't stop the wars, does it? It doesn't matter how many times in church we greet one another with the peace. We still seem to live in mistrust, isn't it? We prefer fighting and being right over being at peace with others. 
And so Paul begins in verse 10, none is righteous, not one. He ends in verse 18, no fear of God before their eyes and everything in between. Here are the facts. Clear as day, we are sinners. This is God's diagnosis on the human condition. This is God's explanation for the evil in our world. We are not essentially good. The problem is not out there. We cannot earn our way to heaven by trying harder. In every respect, we have fallen far, far short of God's holy standard. Do you have the humility to acknowledge it? Does this not explain the world that we live in? Imagine for a moment that there was aliens. I don't, I've never seen an alien. But imagine they existed. One of them came here to visit Earth. They read all the newspaper articles. They signed up for a Facebook account. They turned on the news. They read the history books. What conclusion do you think they would make about humanity? Essentially good? They'd think so, would they? They would conclude that we are rotten to the core of our hearts. There's the charge, all under sin. There is the evidence. Look at our speech and actions. What about the verdict? Verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. What's God's verdict? Guilty as charged. All to be held accountable. All to be condemned. Universally. Every mouth stopped before God's judgment throw nothing to say. No defense. No excuse. No justification. No objections. No escape. The whole world silenced. Held accountable to God. Guilty. Condemned. This is God's verdict on your life and mine. This is God's sentence. Guilty, condemned, worthy of eternal judgment. Do you believe that? Well, how are we going to respond to this rather negative message this evening? I think as much as we might like to deny the problem or explain it away, the first response must be to admit the truth. To admit, yes, this is actually what we're really like. The problem with the, with the drug addict or the alcoholic, very often, is that they refuse to admit that they have a problem. It's normal, they tell themselves. They can stop any time. The problem's everyone else. There's no hope for an addict, is there, until they recognize their problem. That's the same for us. The first step, step is to admit we have a problem. And the second step is to realize that you cannot help yourself. If we are sinners, then you can't make up for the evil of the past just by doing more good in the future, can you? Again, imagine the criminal came and said to the judge, look, I know I killed that person, and that was wrong, yes. Do you know what? I'll make up for it. I'll be kind from now on. I'll do good. I'll help my neighbor take out the rubbish every day. 
doesn't work like that, does it? No amount of doing good can blot out the evil that you've already done. Verse 20 says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He's saying if you try to get your way to heaven just by your own moral effort, all that you will succeed in doing is finding out how sinful you are as God's law points out your failure more and more. Admit your sin. Realize that you can't help yourself. And then go to the cross and throw yourself on the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. Well, wonderfully, there is a solution. <laughs> now, there is hope for sinners like us. It's not all bad news. The gospel is good news. If only we'll admit our sins, turn to Jesus. This is what Paul writes in verse 23. We'll consider it next week. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. See, we can be redeemed. We can be declared righteous in God's sight. We can receive grace. We can have eternal life. We'll think about how next week, but today's passage teaches us we must first admit our problem. We must first realize we can't help ourselves. Only then will we in faith come to Jesus and his cross. If you're sick, it's absolutely crucial the doctor gives you the right diagnosis. Then you can get the right treatment and recover. A wrong diagnosis, a wrong treatment can be fatal. Well, God's diagnosis is that we are universally sinners. God's evidence is abounding in our speech and actions. God's verdict is that we are guilty, deserving judgment. God's sentence is death and eternal separation in the fires of hell. Will we admit our desperate need and so turn to Jesus? Let's pray. None is righteous. No, not one. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you that in your mercy you show us what we're really like. We're sorry for rejecting you as the Lord of our lives and living in such evil. We confess our evil speech. We confess our destructive actions. We know that we deserve your judgment. Father, help us to face the reality of who we are, not to make excuses or justifications. We thank you that you have provided a solution through your Son, Jesus Christ. Help us to come to him in faith. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.